It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Thanks so much for joining us this holiday weekend. We're about halfway through this year, and it's an understatement to say that 2020 has not gone as expected. We're grappling with the uncertainty caused by coronavirus, a record number of job losses, more than 120,000 deaths in the U.S., and a complete loss of normalcy. Simultaneously, we are, again, in a moment of national reckoning. Confronting the current manifestations of our country's violent and racist history after the killings of black Americans, including George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Tony McDade, and the list goes on. These days, weeks, months will be forever etched in our memories. And for many, the experience of this national trauma comes at a time of major life transitions. So on this holiday weekend, we wanted to revisit some conversations we've had recently with people who are navigating all of this. Back in April, as the economic toll of the pandemic was just beginning to come into focus, we talked to several people who are starting out in life. These are the people who will be living with the repercussions, good and bad, the longest. They're missing out on celebrating important milestones like graduations, weddings, bar mitzvahs, quinceaneras, and pregnancies. They are leaving school at a time when millions of Americans have filed for unemployment, they're starting a family during an unprecedented health crisis. My name is Zara Green, and I'm from New York City. Uh, the life event that coronavirus has upended for me is I am pregnant. And not only am I pregnant, but when I discovered this, I was living in Paris. My name is Yara Rashad, and I am from Chicago, Illinois. Coronavirus has appended many life events for me, including my last semester of law school, my graduation, and my future employment. I'm Sherry Bonin from Orange, California. My daughter's wedding was supposed to be on May 9th. My name is Eric Bone. I'm originally from Indianapolis, Indiana, but currently live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I'm completing my master's in business administration at the Roth School of Business at the University of Michigan. Coronavirus has changed almost every aspect of what I thought was gonna be a great finish to the graduate school experience. Milestones that would normally be celebrated are now met with fear and sadness and worry. I traveled back from Paris in the dead of the night after Donald Trump announced that uh, he was closing the borders for everybody from Europe. I mean, it makes me feel unsettled. Uh, my husband and I were saying yesterday that we haven't really had an opportunity to celebrate being pregnant because there have been so many life events and things that we didn't expect being thrown our way. The first big ultrasound that we did for the baby was the day that one of the hospitals in New York City closed um, its doors to partners being able to join the, the pregnant woman in the room. So we arrived at the hospital fully expecting the two of us to go in together and there was a security guard who told us that he couldn't come. The appointment took two and a half hours so he had to you know, wait in the lobby by himself for two and a half hours just kind of twiddling his thumbs and wondering what was going on, which which was hard for both of us, I would say. I was in my last semester of law school at Notre Dame when the coronavirus pandemic hit the States. Notre Dame was on spring break at the time, and we received an email stating that in-person classes would be suspended for the rest of the semester. Notre Dame canceled commencement, um, and we are instead having a virtual graduation via Zoom. Everyone keeps telling me that not having a graduation doesn't take away from my accomplishments, but it definitely feels that way. Graduation was meant to be a celebration of the last three years of my hard work. 
It was meant to be a thank you to my parents who had made so many sacrifices to support me. And it was going to be the final goodbye to a very important chapter of my life. It's hard not to feel like I was robbed of what was supposed to be the best year of my life. And the wedding is tentatively postponed until October. But we haven't ordered the new invitations yet because we're still unsure if that date will be safe to proceed with. Also, it's difficult to make happy plans when a crisis continues to unfold. Luckily, the vendors and businesses we hired have all been very kind, and since they all knew the reason why, they just let us move the date. We just hope that all of these businesses make it through and reopen. The biggest change has definitely been kind of to what comes next after grad school and my post-MBA job search. I was focused on the travel and hospitality industry with companies like Marriott, uh, where I interned last summer as my target. But obviously, with the outsized impact that the pandemic has had on that industry, nearly all the companies I was networking with and, and applying for jobs went, went on hiring freezes in March. And you know, having continued um, conversations with many of the contacts I have, a lot of them are being you know, furloughed for the foreseeable future. The prolonged uncertainty is difficult to digest, especially for those of you who had plans to celebrate achievements you'd worked towards for so long. As far as the pregnancy is concerned, there's just so much uncertainty surrounding what will be allowed, what will not be allowed, what recovery will look like, what the first few months for my child will look like. Now, I have no idea when or if the bar examination is taking place. And if the bar exam gets postponed even further than what most states are doing, it will have a significant impact on my financial situation. I definitely feel as though my plans have been completely derailed. Unfortunately, there's not much I can do to adjust my plans right now because there's just so much uncertainty. It's been very stressful on my daughter and our whole family having to deal with first planning an entire wedding in about four months, then having to suddenly stop everything. My daughter's been through so much in recent years, and recently she and her fiance had to evacuate their home because of the Sonoma County wildfires two times in the past two, three years. We just wanted something good to happen to her for once. We really hope it'll happen. We need something to celebrate. I think first and foremost, this should be a time of celebration with friends and family, completing the MBA process. But really, out of that, I think the biggest disappointment has been the inability to spend time with the classmates and faculty and friends who I've made and have really made the experience unforgettable, obviously. To help us understand the socioeconomic toll the pandemic is having on Americans, especially those who are younger, I spoke with Hannes Schwann, an assistant professor at Northwestern University's School of Education and Social Policy. I spoke to him about the impact recessions have on those trying to enter the workforce. So yeah, there's a growing literature in economics that has shown that graduating in a recession has um, you know, persistent impacts on income and labor market outcomes. So you know, if you, if you enter the labor market doing an economic downturn, then you will earn less in the short run, but then also this is like observed for, for many years to come. And in the most recent study with Phil van Wachter, um, we are looking at the medium to long term. So we are following people up to 30 years uh, after they, they enter the labor market, so you know, around like age 50. And we particularly focus on mortality as an you know, important mm -hmm. indicator for health and, and, and overall uh, well-being. 
and we see that indeed mortality rates in midlife uh, are increasing for cohorts that were particularly unlucky and entered the labor market in bad economic circumstances. So why would their mortality rate increase as they get older? We cannot really pinpoint down the precise mechanism, but the general idea is that graduating recession on average can lead to socioeconomic decline. And so this could mean you have less income, that might mean more stress in your life, that might mean poorer um, health behaviors, and we and maybe a riskier lifestyle. And we indeed see that mortality increases due to heart disease, drug overdoses, uh, lung cancer, liver disease, so causes that can be tied to health behaviors. Hmm. And what about the differences either racially or other gender, other ways in which maybe uh, we can see real differences between how people are faring socioeconomically and and health-wise? So it seems in general that we um, we find that everyone is affected. And this is in line with the idea that, you know, these are just like kind of society-wide impacts, mm-hmm. these recessions. At the same time, there are some differences. On the one hand, we see that especially in the in the short term, there is uh, there are much larger impacts for um, more disadvantaged uh, populations. So, for example, minorities and those with less education. So they are hit harder in terms of income. And um, in the long run, we see relatively similar impacts on mortality, at least in relative terms, for for different socioeconomic groups which is in line with the idea that, you know, if a lot of this goes through social decline and let's say mental health as well, you might, you know, maybe suffer even more if you had a lot of opportunities, if you were in a privileged situation and then you, uh, you, you, you don't have those opportunities. Well, if you're disadvantaged, you might not feel such a, a big difference in the, in the longer term. I mean, like, you know, you, you, you also feel it, but like it's, it's maybe a little bit more muted and that's how we arrive to these uh, similar mortality rates. But what's interesting is if we look at like individual causes, then we see that, of course, kind of like specific causes that that hit certain demographic groups also play come more into play uh, interacting with these kind of like socioeconomic declines. So, for example, um, the recent like opioid epidemic that was until the latest years, at least, was predominantly uh, a non-Hispanic white phenomenon, like was much stronger hitting in those communities. And there we see a stronger response um, um, in, 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 those, in the recession graduates for, for those causes. At the same time, something like HIV um, and AIDS, they, that epidemic hit much harder the, the African-American community, for example. And there we see um, a stronger response on, on that cause due to this um, unlucky start. How hard is it to compare past recessions to this moment that we're in? Yeah, so this is truly unprecedented, just like the magnitudes, right, of like Mm -hmm. the increase in unemployment rates and so on. So anything that we have estimated for previous recessions, you know, now we have to extrapolate to levels that we have never imagined. Like when we were writing the paper, we were like, oh, a strong recession would be one where maybe unemployment rates increase by maybe five percentage points. But now we are talking about increases by up to like 30 percentage points or something. So that is one difference. And there's, of course, always the question, you know, to which extent do any of those effects just like scale up? Um, The other aspect, of course, is that the pandemic has a very particular uh, heterogeneous impact on different groups, right? So... Mm -hmm. 
Um, we can imagine that some groups weather the storm and like the lockdown better than others because of this job structure and so on. Or maybe some people will lose their job more in some in some professions more than in others. So this is also, you know, different from from previous recessions. But I think the the takeaway from our research is just to say, what have we learned about particularly vulnerable groups from past recessions? And I think we have every reason to believe that those who are about to enter the labor market are also a particularly vulnerable group in the upcoming recession or in, in, in this period of time. Right. As you look at what the government has done thus far, and I'm specifically looking at the the CARES Act, which the highlight of that is the individual checks being sent out to Americans. Um, is this enough? Is this the, the kind of things that could help these recent graduates or people who are new to the workforce? Or is there something else that government really needs to be doing to help this really vulnerable population? Um, so I think, of course, it's 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 a first step to send out those checks, right? Even though one could one could debate about like uh, how 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 much money is sent out compared to like you know other loopholes we have found out recently about like in the Care Act, right? Like for like very rich people and so on. Um, but I think the the specific issue that we are facing with the labor market entrance is not so much that they are lacking. Um, money in the short term, you know, maybe there might be some expenses for like applications or so on, right, where they where, where this could help. But in general, it's not an issue of that they are just lacking, you know, a few thousand dollars in in, in, in the months of, of, of job application. The issue in, in general is that there are no jobs, right? right. And that, that the matches that typically are formed and where like good candidates find good firms and start working there, start accumulating human capital, get experience and so on, become a valuable employee over time, uh, those matches don't don't happen. And I think it would be great to have something like, for example, wage subsidies that, that firms can get for hiring recent graduates and, and new labor market entrants. And I think that would be a much more directed incentive um, policies that are directly targeted at creating those matches, you know, and having the the new labor market entrance, you know, getting job offers, that would be particularly useful. Well, Hannes Schwant, thank you so much for taking the thanks, time thanks so and much. walking us through this. Yeah, of course. Hannes Schwant is an assistant professor at Northwestern University School of Education and Social Policy. This hour, we're revisiting some conversations we've had recently about the economic impact of coronavirus. About a decade ago, the Great Recession was considered to be the most severe economic slowdown since the Great Depression. By late 2009, more than 15 million Americans were unemployed. Among them were millennials graduating from college and eager to enter the labor force at the worst possible time. Many of them struggled to find work relevant to their interests, so they took a series of low-paying jobs that reduced their lifetime earnings. For many millennials, this led to distrust of the institutions, policies, and personalities that they believe contributed to the financial meltdown. I talked to Amanda Mole from The Atlantic about how coronavirus might do the same for what she's calling Generation C. One of the stories that's emerging about the pandemic is the disastrous 
strike different groups of people depending on where they are in life. And that means socioeconomically, that means employment wise, that means, you know, lots of different things, whether they live in rural or urban areas. Uh, But I think one that's been largely overlooked is how it strikes people differently based on where they are in just sort of the arc of their lives. Uh, But one thing that could be really, really severe in younger people is, is the sort of socioeconomic and, uh, political fallout that they have then have to deal with for the rest of their lives. Uh, so Generation C is a term that my colleague Ed Young coined, and uh, we have sort of at The Atlantic fleshed it out to mean young people right now basically under the age of 25. So those in school, those in college, and those who are just in their very first uh, post-graduation jobs trying to make a transition uh, from being young to being grown. Uh, mm-hmm. from from studenthood to adulthood. What do we think it means for these young people who, again, if they were in school or going through sort of their normal lives and struggling with all the things that a tween struggles with or a person that is going into um, later teenage dumb goes into when they don't have those social norms, when they don't have those... Um, those traditional points in their life that they can point to as guideposts. One of the things that, uh, that I think all, maybe not all, but pretty much most of Americans sort of agree on is that the story of our teen years isn't just the story of going to school, that going Mm -hmm. to middle school and going to high school means a lot to people in a lot of different ways. It's where you learn, you start to build the skills to, Um, to hash out interpersonal conflicts, to have romantic relationships, to understand your relationship to authority, to understand what you're passionate about in life. So all of those like skills that you're picking up along the way that don't necessarily have anything to do with what's in your textbooks or what you're taking tests on are really, really super valuable. And they generally require a lot of in-person interaction. There have been studies done on distance learning programs that are that are conducted digitally and even in situations where they are well planned and well funded the results that you get out of them, the thing, the amount that the kids benefit is just not as much as going to school Mm -hmm. in person. And then for kids who are from economically disadvantaged backgrounds or from unstable families, school is where you get hot meals, school is where you get responsible authority figures that you can rely on. It's where you start to build your framework of understanding your role in life in a, in a way that is far more important for disadvantaged kids than it is for ones with stable home lives. So you have this whole array of potential factors that, that could be impacting how these kids will move through the rest of their lives right now. Right. There's also been a lot of talk, though, about, especially if you're on the younger end of the millennial spectrum of a generation that maybe they were in school during the downturn of 2008, or they started the job market on the tail end of the recession. But the sort of double whammy that that generation is is feeling. Can you talk a little bit about maybe how this sort of almost back to back crises is is going to influence generation not just under 25, but potentially generation under 40? So I am of the exact uh, the exact demographic that you're talking about here. I graduated college in 2008. I was laid off from my first job seven months later when the economy collapsed, and it, it has taken me and you know a lot of that cohort of uh, sort of like mid generation millennials 
all of the time since then and to scrape together the sort of stability that would have been a lot more achievable had that recession not happened. Now that those that those people are, you know, 10 or 12 years out from that experience, you, you're able to look at that data and say that, okay, the people who graduated from school, whatever kind of school it was, high school, college, law school, whatever, uh, during that period of time, because they graduated into a period of instability, they have had their careers uh, redirected in ways that have uh, impacted not just how much money they earned then, but their lifetime earnings. Does this then widen the sort of OK Boomer divide? I think that as the group of people who are sort of on the uh, receiving end of a lot of the negative economic outcomes that this country has produced over the past 15 years, as that group grows, I think that you're going to see a widening of the existing ideological divide between older Americans and younger Americans. This was really, really legible during the uh, Democratic primaries, where more centrist candidates like Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg were... uh, a lot more popular among older voters, whereas uh, further left candidates like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders especially uh, were much, much more popular uh, among younger voters. That divide over what people believe is the mandate of the progressive wing of this country's politics is, I think, only going to be widened as you watch people lose their jobs, as you watch working class people being required to deliver groceries to the, to richer folks, as you watch you know, transit operators and people like that go into work and then and then die in disproportionate numbers. And as you watch how the uh, the effects of the pandemic are felt more acutely among Black and Latino people who have experienced environmental racism, who don't have access to health care uh, at the same rate as the rest of the population. So I think that pandemics tend to illuminate how dis- mm-hmm. disadvantages accumulate. And young people who are, you know, not as not as beholden to Cold War rhetoric and, and fear about more uh, social safety net oriented policies are going to want government to do those things, are going to expect their leaders to have an answer for those problems. Amanda Moll, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this with me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. After my conversation with Amanda Mull about Generation C, I wanted to hear directly from someone who falls into that cohort. My name is Judah Lewis. I'm a political science major and an English minor at Howard University. Judah actually completed his first semester of senior year back in 2017, but he was forced to take time away from school in order to pay down the money he owed for tuition. My father had been helping me out um, financially, and uh, he came to me and he was like, you know, I got to be honest with you, like, you're going to have to essentially carry the baton across the uh, the finish line because it's just too expensive um which i completely understood um and so that fall i went to school and um i, I didn't have any financial aid i, I didn't it, you know i had a i had a pell grant and that was it um however um i had no other uh, no other way to pay the money back um and that was the first half of my senior year that year, I ended up, they told me that I couldn't register for classes next semester because I had an outstanding balance, uh, which I knew was going to happen. But I was like, I need to go. I just, I need to go to school. I need to continue. So I ended up having to take all of my stuff out of my dorm because I wasn't registered for classes and I had to go all the way back home. Um, and I had a bill of a little bit over $18,000 that I had to pay back. 
Back home in Connecticut, Judah had to figure out how to pay down his debt. I didn't have a job. I didn't really have many people who would hire me because I didn't have a degree. Um, and so my younger sister at the time, she was in high school and she said, why don't you work with me at uh, this Vietnamese restaurant as a waiter? And I didn't have any other opportunities at the time. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Uh, and I did that for a few months. Um, I was making less than minimum wage, uh, which was just difficult. Uh, after that, I, I left and I started to work at a warehouse at Amazon. And then I moved on and I got hired at the Marriott. When I first started there, I was making $11.05. I kept working. I worked there for about a year. Um, I, I got promoted to the supervisor position, and I uh, started to make a little bit more money. Essentially, all of the money that I had, I was just throwing it in tech, throwing it at this debt. And then I get hired at Voya Financial, um, and which was another promotion. Um, and I was still living ex well below my means, um, still just trying to find ways to, like, cut corners um, so I don't I can spend less I had friends who would pick me up from work and bring me home and, and vice versa just so that I could save money on bus fare and ubers and that kind of thing eventually I was I was able to get back to uh, able to get back to school so Judah started his final semester in January but as COVID-19 began to spread it became clear things weren't going to happen as expected Obviously, everyone knew what the issue uh, that was going on with COVID-19, um, that it was a it was going to be a national issue um, and that there were going to be some changes to how the university, um, how the university handled it and that kind of thing. Um, originally, we were told that we could stay on campus throughout the rest of the semester, but that everything was going to be online. And then they told us that we were going to have to leave and we could come back April 6. And then that got moved up to them saying, you guys have to leave at the end of spring break which then got moved up to now you have to leave the 22nd of, I think it was March. And then one day we actually got an email that said, no, actually, you have to be off of campus within 48 hours. Wow. Yeah, so that was very difficult because I, I didn't really have much of a plan and I was getting new information about the, the severity um, of this in, in real time. And it's not just the end of the semester celebrations that have been upended by the coronavirus. Once again, Judah finds himself facing an uncertain financial reality. I was told recently that like a scholarship that I had gone for might be postponed because of the coronavirus. I received Pell Grants and student loans and that kind of thing. And I received another scholarship, but I, I'm not sure if it was going to be enough to cover this last semester. That was another way, actually, that I had. Did that scholarship end up coming through or no? I'm not sure. It's still I in the still didn't know. Yeah. yeah. I've been like bothering one of my professors about it. And he said that it might be postponed, which it, it, it's I, I'm not sure what's, what's going to happen with that. When you talk to your friends about this, um, are you guys do you feel like you're on the same page with um, people who are in your same situation, people who are graduating from school this year or almost set to graduate um, and what their prospects might look like for post-graduation. And then even, I don't know, if you're talking about what your life might look like further down the road, like what this is going to mean for you all five or 10 years from now. The, the students that, I, um, that I'm going to school with, if we're on the same page, I know that they're very upset about it as well. Um, I know it really, it's really, really difficult to not to work so hard towards something and like 
you have this idea of being able to go to a commencement and bring your family and that kind of thing, and and you don't get to do that. Um, I, I I don't think that we're necessarily on the same page. I think for me it was especially hard given this my particular circumstances um, and thinking like finally like I will finally be able to graduate now and I will be able to like show my parents my degree and that kind of thing and I'm going to graduate with honors and that's not mm. going to be happening the same um, you know I, it's 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 tough um, for sure but I think that it's affected me uniquely um, in my financial situation as well as me having left school for for two years. And so you were hoping to go to Teach for America after yes. this. Yes. And what's happened with that? I, I was accepted into Teach for America. I was accepted into the Dallas, Texas region. And so normally what they do is they hold what's called Institute. And for, um, I think it's like a month and a half, you actually, you're, you receive training and you're being taught how to teach and that kind of thing um, from other people that are a part of Teach for America. And that's not going to be happening the same way right now. I don't have all the information, um, but I do know that I'm not going to be heading out to, to Texas right now. I know that part of it's going to be virtual. Um, that's what they're aiming. So, If you think about sort of where we go from, from here as a country, um, do you see that your generation is going to be – uniquely um, impacted by this? Is there a worry that you have that no matter how long this lasts, it's going to have a deep um, oh, for sure. impact for longer than just a year or a few months? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think that, I think that, I mean, my personal belief is that in life, uh, in order to be successful, you have to have a lot of different things go right. And a lot of little, little things add up to huge monumental things. So it's not just me, but what I'm thinking about in particular is like young kids who are still in K to 12 who are not in school right now. What does that mean for them? I'm also thinking about like kids whose parents are struggling financially. What does that mean for them? Like if you're not getting a, the, the proper education and the proper care that you need in a span of a couple of months that if you are already in a adverse situation, that could mean very, very bad things for you down the line. And that's one of the reasons that I want to join Teach for America to be able to mitigate that. But um, mm. that's definitely a concern of mine. Well, Judah, I, I really thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk with me and share your story. Oh, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Please stay safe and take care. I will. You, you as well. We originally spoke to Judah back in April, so we reached out two months later to see how things are going. I've been doing well since I left Howard University. I was very fortunate to receive a great deal of support since last being on the show. Graduating during a global pandemic is odd to say the least uh, because there's no manual on how to do it properly and there isn't anyone you can ask for guidance. You just have to kind of be resilient and, and keep moving forward. This fall, I'm really excited to have accepted a teaching position as a seventh grade English teacher in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I'm really happy about this. Even though I feel like I may have made it out of a bad position unscathed, the doors of opportunity that were open for me are not necessarily open for everyone else. I do believe that you have a moral obligation to look out for the person on the left of you and the person on the right for you because I wouldn't have made it um, if people didn't do that for me. Judah Lewis is a recent graduate at Howard University. 
Now, harder than ever, we must act up, fight back, fight AIDS. Plague. We are in the middle of a plague. And you behave like this. Plague. 40 million infected people is a plague. Larry Kramer. As you can probably tell, he was a fighter. He did not mince words. He was a playwright and a gay rights activist, but his demand for attention and resources to fight HIV AIDS made him a giant. There was medicine before and medicine after Larry. That's another voice you might recognize, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the lead authority on infectious disease in the U.S. and part of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. In the 1980s, Fauci was researching a different infectious disease that was wreaking havoc on the gay community. And that's where he first crossed paths with Larry Kramer. He transformed the way the community interacts, not only with the scientific community, the regulatory community, uh, and the federal government, when the federal government is involved in the research and intervention of a particular disease. He did it in a way that was unprecedented. Uh, There wasn't much attention paid, uh, and I think that was inappropriate because the government at the time could have used the bully pulpit to really bring attention to something that was an emerging catastrophe, particularly for the gay community. Larry sensed that and used his techniques, which were very unusual and in to some respects frightening to people. He scared the hell out of the scientific community as well as the regulatory community, not to mention federal officials because he was so iconoclastic, outrageous uh, in, in the way he would confront people to gain their attention. That shook the cages of the medical, regulatory and government community. So that's what I meant when I said nothing was ever the same after that because it became clear that you have to get involved in your decision making, the people who are going to be impacted by your decision making. And it seems like that's a no brainer now. But back then, scientists were very rigid and essentially inflexible in realizing that people who are the ones that are going to be impacted by what you're doing should have a say both in the design of a clinical trial and the implementation of a clinical trial. And back then it was thought, don't bother us, we're the scientists, we're the physicians, we're the regulators, we'll tell you what's good for you, which almost seems laughable now retrospectively, but back then that's the way it was. Larry changed that. Is there another disease that came afterward that became, to your point, one in the after Larry issue where you said, okay, we learned from him. We need to involve the people who are afflicted by this in this process, bring them to the table. You know, I think every outbreak with few exceptions, and I think COVID is an exception because COVID afflicts anybody and everybody. But other outbreaks sometimes are selective for certain people, certain regions, certain, like for example, when we had Zika, Remember Zika, if you don't have Mm -hmm. mosquitoes around, you don't have to worry about Zika. But that's not the way with COVID, because with COVID, it doesn't matter where you are. And then there was Ebola, uh, you know, the understanding of what it meant 
for the people in the developed developing world in West Africa with the big outbreak there and then in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Central Africa. It's the understanding of that you've got to engage the community. Because I can remember back when we were doing Ebola and I was deeply involved with the response to Ebola, that we had to understand the special needs of people, for example, burying them. They would not want you to essentially deal with their dead family members in a way that you felt was safe because it was against their tradition. And unless you understood the tradition, you really had a hard time keeping the community safe. It has different levels of approach, but it's always a sensitivity to the needs of the involved people, your partners with them. It isn't the physician is up in some pedestal, the regulators are up in some pedestal, and then the afflicted people are somewhere down below. We're partners in what we do. And that's the point that Larry was making. And, you know, and it's very interesting because to really understand Larry, Larry was very confrontative, theatrical, and I use the word outrageous because he was. I loved him. I loved him like a brother, and I still do, that he's gone. But, and we loved each other. But he was completely outrageous. But he didn't get into the fine granular details of now that I've got people's attention, how do I articulate what the needs are? That wasn't his forte. What he did do, which complemented the effectiveness of his outrageous theatrical behavior, was that he mentored and brought under his wing a group of young activists from the original ACT UP group who were very academic, very serious, very scholarly. And they got into what it meant to really get involved in being part of the research agenda and planning the clinical trials to make sure that they're user-friendly. Well, that's the other remarkable part of your story, Dr. Fauci, is the fact that he called you a murderer, you're an incompetent idiot, and, now, and you say, but we're brothers... We're like brothers. We were best friends. How, how does that happen? When he was doing that, and I, and I did this with other activists in addition to Larry, when they are being as outrageous and as confrontative as that, that is a reflection of the pain they're feeling and the frustration that they're meeting. And I got that pretty quickly. So I adapted uh, adopted uh, kind of a philosophy with them that this isn't anything personal with me. To them, it's strictly business. I'm a public figure, and it isn't Tony Fauci, the person who they ultimately got to know. It was this public figure. Um, so I put that aside and said, I'm not going to get annoyed or angry or hurt. I was shocked the first time. I mean, when you're a physician and you've trained all your life to help people, and then somebody puts on the front page of the San Francisco Examiner Sunday magazine section that you're an incompetent idiot and a murderer. That certainly shocks you and gets your attention. But once I got past that, I didn't take it personally. I started to listen to try and understand what he was trying to do was to get the attention of someone who would listen to him. And I went from an adversary to an acquaintance, to a 
casual friend to a really good friend to a deep, deep friendship and affection over a period of decades. And that's well, and you helped him with his liver disease. I mean, you were the his doctor. Uh, I was, I was. I mean, he had a primary physician who was quite good, but he was getting into trouble because he had chronic hepatitis B in addition to HIV infection. And he was not doing very well at all. We would, you know, either have dinner or I'd go up there, we'd be on the phone a lot. We, we, we had hundreds of phone calls together, several dinners and a lot of visits. And there was a period of time where he just didn't sound right. He, he sounded like he was sinking. And I said, Larry, you know, I don't like the way you sound. And he says, well, my physicians are perplexed. They don't know what's going on. I seem to be, you know, going downhill. I said, well, let me bring you down to the NIH here in Bethesda and, and let me take a look at you. You know, I'll, I'll be a consultant. I'll be a physician for a month. So we brought him down and it was clear that he needed a liver transplant. So we made the arrangements with the University of Pittsburgh for him to get a liver transplant. It was kind of historic because then there was a big reluctancy to transplant livers into people with HIV infection. He was one of the first ones. It was not only life-saving, it gave him a significant number of additional years. And then when he went back, he continued his work, you know, his books and his plays and all the other things he did. Thinking about where we are today, I mean, you're able now all these years later, to look back at that era during the height of the AIDS crisis, your relationship with Larry Kramer. Now, thinking forward for what we may learn about this pandemic that we're in, is is there something right now that you think, you know, I see already where we're going to be focused on some of the blind spots that we have had in dealing with a pandemic of this type? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look back with HIV, it took a while to get a full grasp of what the variable manifestations are, what the precise mechanisms of pathogenesis are. And we learned you have to be humble. Uh, you know, as much experience that you have, and I've had at that time, I had already been at the NIH for nine years working rather successfully in other diseases when HIV came along in 1981. Of course, I came back from my medical training in New York in 1972, and nine years later we had HIV. You know, I think you're pretty good, you think you know medicine pretty well, and then all of a sudden you're confronted with a disease that puzzles you and that you realize you have a lot to learn about. So you have to have a degree of humility. That is being translated right now with COVID. I mean, COVID, we still don't fully understand so many things about this disease. We know that it's very, very efficiently transmitted from person to person. That's clear. We know that asymptomatic people transmit it. But we also know that there's a great deal of disparity in the clinical manifestations, where some people do perfectly well with a few sniffles of feeling of a stuffed nose, maybe a cough, a fever, and they're done. They're fine. Other people get the same virus, and then after a week or so, they deteriorate, they go to the intensive care unit, and then they die. I mean, that's very interesting. I mean, we do know that 
being elderly and having comorbidities like diabetes and hypertension and obesity puts you at a higher risk of a poor outcome with COVID. But it doesn't explain why one 35-year-old person would do perfectly well and another 35-year-old person would die. It doesn't explain why some children get barely any disease and others get this post-infectious multi-system inflammatory syndrome that's still very puzzling to us. So we have a lot to learn. So going through the learning process of HIV AIDS has sort of set the stage for the learning process that we're going through with COVID. I want to go back just a moment for, um, you know, go back to the early days um, of researching AIDS back in the early 80s. Think about where we are now. And it's 40 plus years. Did you think we would be farther along maybe in what we know about it, or at least to be able to have um, a vaccine for it? Yeah. Well, if you put a vaccine aside, Amy, which, you know, I, you know, I could talk to you very briefly about a vaccine. It's very problematic to get a vaccine against a pathogen that the body itself does not make a very good immune response against. And that's one of the realities, but the frustrations of HIV is that that's the reason why there are essentially no people who spontaneously clear the virus and recover. Some people do better than others, but nobody completely clears the virus on their own because their immune system for reasons that we don't understand are not capable of dealing very well with this virus. So whenever you develop a vaccine for any disease, including COVID, I could tell you right off the bat, Amy, that it's gonna be infinitely easier to develop a vaccine for COVID than it is to develop a vaccine for HIV. Because we know that the body makes a really good response against COVID. And many, many, many people, the majority, recover and do just fine. That means that conceptually we know that the body is capable of doing that. Whereas with HIV, we don't have that proof of concept. So we've got to do better than natural infection does if we're going to make a vaccine. So putting vaccine aside, HIV therapy has been an amazing success story. I mean, I spent the summer of 1981 when we brought in the first HIV infected person to the NIH and at the time, we didn't know it was HIV until 1983, 84. We just called it a different name, GRID, inappropriate gay-related immunodeficiency. And then we finally decided to call it AIDS. And then a few years later, we found the virus. For those years, from 1981 till we started to get good drugs, essentially, with few exceptions, every single one of my patients died. It was the darkest years of my professional career, the darkest years of my life. Prior to that, I was a physician that was developing cures for inflammatory diseases, and my life was one success story after another with a patient, and then it was one failure after another, after another, after another. So from going from that status to having drugs now, which when given in combination with one single pill, you can get someone who's HIV to live essentially a normal lifespan, not quite, almost a normal lifespan. So those years of investment in research with HIV 
have really paid off when it comes to therapy. As you mentioned, we still have the challenge of developing a vaccine, but the therapy is just spectacularly effective. And the frustrations are coming from different channels this time. There's not necessarily a Larry Kramer, but there's criticism now and questions coming from everywhere at you. Did did working at that moment and working with Larry Kramer help you to be prepared for the amount of incoming that you are going to be getting? Actually, Amy, I'm smiling at your question. What I have said in the past, whenever I'm getting a lot of incoming, wherever it's from, from the community, from the administration, from the Congress, from whenever I get that, I say to myself, hey, this is a piece of cake. I've been through Larry Kramer. Don't worry about it. Do you think he would appreciate that? Oh, he used to laugh. I would tell him, you know, we'd have dinner sometimes and you know, well after the peak of the HIV uh, tension. And he'd see me in Washington, you know, in Washington, as you well know, Amy, you're, you're, this is your beat. Um, you, uh, you know, you uh, understand that you get incoming and criticized no matter what you do. A day doesn't go by that you make somebody unhappy. But you've got to realize that that's the nature of the position you're in and the job that you have to do. And I used to joke with Larry, saying, Larry, you trained me well. You threw so much crap at me over the years that anything that gets thrown at me now seems like it's second rate. So I don't worry about it. Well, Dr. Fauci, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, to reminisce about Larry Kramer. It's been wonderful talking with you. Same here, Amy. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. That's all for us today. A quick shout out to the people who helped put this show together. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Debbie Daughtry is our board op. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Thanks so much for listening and for spending part of your July 4th weekend with us. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.